Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. It's hard to help someone when they're already gone. Already When I started the podcast more than five years ago, I was not keen on covering serial killers. I didn't see the mystery to them, and I wanted to focus more on lesser-known cases. Little did I know that there are serial killers out there that most people don't know about. Men, and sometimes women, who commit multiple murders without being caught. Then, when they are caught, the case doesn't make huge headlines. Be it timing, or geography, or the victims themselves... Somehow their killer isn't deemed particularly newsworthy. David Spanbauer was one of those killers. His crimes spanned four decades. Come with me to a cold night in February of 1960, when 19-year-old David Spanbauer is finally picked up by police for what will be the first of many horrifying crimes. It was cold, as February in Sheboygan, Wisconsin usually is. Cold and dark that night with temperatures in the teens. Most people were buttoned up in their homes, safe and warm against the persistent chill. But someone was out, prowling among the parked cars on Z Court, a narrow street just six blocks from the big water of Lake Michigan. A call was placed to police about the prowler, and a scout car responded. The scout cruised the area and saw a man go from one parked vehicle to the next. When he drove away, they lit him up. As they interviewed the driver, 19-year-old David Spanbauer, he was searched and police found a thirty-eight caliber handgun and bullets on his person, as well as items he'd taken from cars earlier in the evening. Spanbauer was taken into custody and charged with carrying a concealed weapon and petty larceny. The teenager opted to plead guilty to the charges and was sentenced to a year of probation. I'm sure he breathed a sigh of relief to get such a lenient sentence. But detectives in Sheboygan had a hunch. Where did a kid like Spanbauer get a gun like that? So they traced the serial number and the gun led them back to a January 13th burglary in nearby Wauwatosa. When he was picked up by police for the burglary, David needed to unburden himself. He told them that he'd also stolen a piggy bank and some cash during this incident. When police talked to the victim of the January 13th burglary, he told police they were mistaken. He didn't have a piggy bank. This sent detectives digging in the files, and they found a separate incident on January 12th, where cash and a piggy bank were stolen. Detectives confronted David with this information, and he announced that he wanted to talk. He had a lot to say, but only to the district attorney. A representative from the Milwaukee County DA's office was dispatched to the jail for a meeting with Spanbauer. And listeners, I hope he brought a stenographer with him, because David Spanbauer had a lot to say. We know these were not Spanbauer's first crimes. He had a juvenile record that went back nearly a decade. David first started getting in trouble when he was 11 or 12. He can't remember the first time he got picked up by police, but it was for theft. Then, he was caught snatching purses. Both times, he was let off with a warning. 
but at age 14, there was a more serious charge, breaking and entering. David was given a year's probation and recommended for psychiatric treatment, such that it was in the 1950s. And I'd like to point at David's upbringing as the root of his issues, but it all looks pretty normal. David Spanbauer was born January 5th, 1941, to parents Grace and Frank in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Grace was a homemaker and Frank was a laborer. They had three children, David and his two sisters. His father had some medical issues and would pass away in 1955 when David was 14 years old. It's never easy to lose a parent, but in my opinion, 14 is a particularly difficult age to experience such a loss. In 1958, when David was 17, he joined the Navy. He would be discharged in 1959 because of going AWOL on multiple occasions. He was also caught with a weapon and charged with robbery. These charges were dismissed, and again, psychiatric treatment is recommended for him. When his friends from school... He did attend Oshkosh High School, but it appears he didn't graduate. When they were asked about David, there are two repeating themes. He had a bad temper, and he didn't seem to like girls or women. So let's return to David and the Milwaukee District Attorney. David started talking about his crimes. He wanted to get things off his chest. David said that at night he would drive around looking at houses. If he saw a house where it appeared that a woman was home alone, he would force his way into the home. On January 3, 1960, in Appleton, David burglarized an unoccupied home and stole a 22 caliber gun, two diamond rings, cash, a bottle of brandy, and a knife. On January 4th, he spotted Winfred Knutson, who he thought was alone in a home on Mead Street in Nina. David, wearing a blue bandana on his face, smashed in a small pane of glass with the butt of his gun, opened the door, and demanded money. Winfred gave him $11, but David didn't leave. She then said David should leave before she screamed for her husband, who was asleep in the next room. David then fled the home. For reference, that $11 is worth about 100 bucks in today's money. A week later, on January 12th, David was driving around to Appleton when he saw a 13-year-old girl inside a house not knowing that her mom was asleep on the sofa. David forced his way in and held both the girl and mother at gunpoint. The gun David used in this attack was the 22 caliber weapon he stole on January 3rd. David forced the girl to go behind the house with him and made her strip off her clothing. David hit the girl twice and said he was going to rape her. The girl asked David, what does that mean? Then a passerby scared David off before he could further harm the girl. David fled to his car and drove north to Green Bay, where he hoped to find another victim. David must have been particularly agitated this night because the hour-long drive to Green Bay did not slow him down. He pulled into town and immediately started looking for his next target. Then he saw her, a 16-year-old girl sitting at a piano inside a home on Reed Street. He didn't know that the girl was there babysitting for the Cardinal family who were out attending an event at the local school. David burst into the house and pointed the gun at the babysitter's face. He then dragged her into the bedroom, stripped off her clothes, and tied her spread eagle on the bed. He ransacked the home looking for cash, weapons, and valuables he could steal. 
When he was done searching, he returned to the bedroom and raped the teenager. Spanbauer was still in the house when the Cardinals returned home from the meeting. The teen cried out, trying to warn them, but David confronted the couple, shooting Alton Cardinal in the face at close range. Thankfully, it was not a fatal blow. Alton would be hospitalized for days, but he would make a full recovery. Meanwhile, David ran to his car and hurried out of town, watching in his rearview mirror as roadblocks were set up behind him. Those roadblocks were meant to catch and stop him, the thief and would-be killer. David returned to the home he shared with his mother and sisters. Days after this horrific assault, he gave away the 22 caliber gun to a friend. The close call in Green Bay did not stop his criminal activities. It only slowed them down. On February 1st, 1960, David broke into the Milwaukee home of Grace Fennell. She screamed and ran out the front door and David took off, again not wanting to be caught. When David was done talking to the Milwaukee DA, arrangements were made so that representatives from the district attorney's offices and other counties where his crimes were committed could interview him. A plan was put in place that the charges would be consolidated. This would avoid multiple trials in multiple jurisdictions. On February 29, 1960, David pled guilty to 10 charges, two counts of armed robbery, three counts of armed burglary, and one count of each of the following, rape, conduct regardless of human life, burglary, theft, and attempted rape. Personally, I think he should have been charged with attempted murder for shooting Elton Cardinal, but they didn't ask me. Spanbauer was sentenced to 70 years in prison for the charges, and he was sent for evaluation because of the sex crimes. David met with psychologists and psychiatrists. They needed to see if he should go to the sex deviant facility. An April 14, 1960 report said, The results of psychological tests indicate that this young man has bright normal intellectual potential. He has never functioned at the level of his potential and his general behavior is indicative of impulsivity and poor judgment. This is a very disturbed and unhappy boy who presents ample evidence of severe personality conflict since early adolescence. He is quite immature in almost all areas of his behavior. An April 28, 1960 report said, in part, The patient's concept of himself is extremely low. He sees himself as being something far less than other human beings and as some sort of monster. There is no adequate diagnostic category for this boy. For classification purposes, he would fall under sociopathic personality disturbance, but that diagnosis does not reflect the severity of his withdrawal and the very great potential he has for an acute psychotic reaction. This is a boy with whom the possibility of severe psychosis is always present, given average sort of stresses on his personality. He is extremely disturbed, and at this time, he is extremely dangerous. On May 3, 1960, for the sex crime convictions, David was committed to the sex deviate facility for treatment for an indeterminate term to run concurrently with a 70-year sentence on the other convictions. Following his convictions, David filed a petition for writ of habeas corpus, which was denied by the district court. David then appealed the district court's decision to the United States Court of Appeals, who also denied the petition. David was petitioning for a writ of habeas corpus because throughout the whole court process for the January and February 1960 crimes, 
He was not represented by an attorney because he had waived his rights. At one point, he did ask for an attorney, but that request was not passed along to the judge. Remember, this is in the days before Miranda. David Spanbauer would serve 12 years behind bars for his crimes. He was released in the spring of 1972. On May 12, 1972, after more than a decade behind bars, David Spanbauer was released from prison. He had a parole officer to check in with, and David took up residence at the YMCA. He also started taking courses at a local technical college. He had not been out of prison for two full weeks when he was arrested for violating his parole. David had let a prison escapee use his car during a string of robberies. David's parole agent told the court that David had, quote, grossly violated his parole, and it needed to be revoked. But the judge decided not to revoke David's parole because he'd cooperated with police. David was given two years of probation for the incident and was assigned to a work release program with the city of Madison Parks Department. Thankfully, this incident, which should have sent him right back to prison to finish his 70-year term, was not a violent one. But listeners, the violent incidents are coming. Friday, August 11th, was a cool gray day in Madison. David was out driving around, which is never a good thing. He spotted a young woman, a 17-year-old, hitchhiking, and he offered her a ride. Once he had her in the car, he told her that he was going to beat her, throw her body in the road, and run her over. She cried and begged, and David wept too as he drove the car north. Finally, he stopped the car in the Token Creek Park where he tied her up and he raped her. Then he stole her money, the 50 cents she had in her pocket, and he left her there. When she reported the assault to police, she described her attacker and mentioned the devil's head tattoo on his forearm. It didn't take long for Spanbauer to be identified. On August 16th, less than a week after the rape, David was picked up while at work. He was charged with rape, sexual perversion, abduction, false imprisonment, and robbery. He wrote his parole officer and asked for help. David claimed that the sex was consensual. David's version of events was that he and the 17-year-old hitchhiker got friendly on the ride and decided to hook up. Right. Sure, that's what happened. And listeners, what happens next is some of the most ridiculous and infuriating bullshit I have ever discussed on the podcast. On May 4th, 1973, a jury found Spanbauer guilty of rape, abduction, and sexual perversion. He was acquitted of armed robbery. David's attorney, a bottom feeder named Robert Burke, told the judge that the rape was, quote, rather mild. He reminded the judge that the girl, because she was hitchhiking, was basically asking for it. And yes, asking for it, that's a quote. The judge pondered this for a moment. And if you think the judge is going to do the right thing here, prepare to be disappointed. The judge, Richard Bardwell, brought up that because the victim saw tears in David's eyes during the rape, quote, the intercourse may have been a bit less than completely forceful. Judge Bardwell said the rape of the hitchhiker was a, quote, much more mild rape than the one of the babysitter in Green Bay. Because the rape was more mild, Judge Bardwell said Spanbauer had shown some improvement. For raping a teenage girl at knife point, 
Judge Bardwell sentenced Spanbauer to up to 12 years in prison. Because David committed the crimes while on probation, his probation was revoked, so he had to serve the rest of his 70-year sentence. This 12-year sentence would be served concurrently with the 70-year sentence, which meant that the 12-year sentence for raping the hitchhiker was basically no sentence at all. Spanbauer wouldn't serve any additional time. Because of Wisconsin law in the 1970s, David would only have to serve 45% of his 70-year sentence before the state would be mandated to release him. Mandated to release a serial rapist. It's amazing, isn't it? On January 29, 1991, David was paroled after reaching his mandatory release date. He'd spent 30 of his 35 adult years in prison. David returned to Oshkosh. His mom and one of his two sisters had passed away while he was in prison. So David moved in with his sister Judy and her husband, who was a police lieutenant. David used the electrical and maintenance skills he learned in prison to get a job at the 7-Up bottling plant. By April of 1991, he's able to afford his own place and moves out of his sister's home into an apartment. While incarcerated, David was busy. He got married, but I don't think that wife stuck around. And he appeared before the parole board a dozen times. At many of these appearances, he requested that he receive treatment for his issues, which meant transferring him to another facility. But those requests were denied. In the months following his release from prison, David began asking his parole officer for permission to leave the area for vacations. David enjoyed gambling, and he was allowed to leave the state multiple times for trips to places like Las Vegas and Atlantic City. David Spanbauer was out of prison less than two years when the first murder occurred. On August 23, 1992, between 1.30 and 2 p.m., 10-year-old Ronnie, born Ronell Sue Eichstedt, was last seen near her dead-end road home in Ripon. She was riding her blue and pink huffy bike. It had a banana seat and high handlebars. Ronnie was around four feet tall with brown hair and hazel eyes. At the time of her disappearance, she was wearing white, baggy sailor shorts and printed with blue, red, and yellow boats, a green Circus World Museum t-shirt, and polka dot shoes with black Velcro straps. Her parents, Gary and Charlotte, and her sisters, Carrie and Regina, they began searching for her immediately, but there is no sign of the missing fourth grader. On September 4th, two weeks after she went missing, her bike was found in the weeds more than 10 feet from the side of the road, but not too far from her house. The bike showed no sign of damage. The undamaged bike told investigators that she was not injured or killed in a hit-and-run accident. Ronnie's remains were found on September 30th, more than 100 miles from her house. Her fully clothed remains were found on private property on High Point Road near the town of Arena. Rapon, where she is from, is between Oshkosh and Madison, and I hope I'm saying Rapon right. Arena is west of Madison in a largely rural area. Her remains were badly decomposed, but it appeared the cause of death was suffocation. While police searched for her killer, they were years away from learning his name. And I don't believe that David controlled himself or was inactive in 1993, but the next known crime he committed was an attempted kidnapping in early July of 1994. 24-year-old Miriam Steria was riding her bike when a gun-wielding man attacked her. Before the crime could progress, another vehicle arrived and her attacker fled. She did complete a composite sketch, but the sketch was not publicized. 
In the days after this thwarted assault, David wrote to his parole agent saying, things are going well. He's just working too hard. In July of 1994, Michigan native Trudy Marie Jeschke is living in Appleton, Wisconsin with her sister and brother-in-law. 22-year-old Trudy is doing great. She's got a good job at a local bank, and she recently purchased a new car. Over the 4th of July holiday, her sister and brother-in-law went on a camping trip, leaving Trudy, who couldn't take time off from the new job, home by herself. On the night of July 9th, it's just after midnight when Trudy is on the phone with her boyfriend. Suddenly, he hears her scream, and the call goes dead. He immediately dials 911, summoning help, and police hurry to the home where they find Trudy. She's been killed by a single shotgun blast to the chest. When they search the home, police find evidence of forced entry at a rear window. There was no sign of a struggle, and Trudy's purse was not touched. It appears that murder was the sole motive for the attack. While Trudy's friends, co-workers, and family are looked at closely, they can't find anyone who might have a reason to harm her. This brings us to Spanbauer's last confirmed murder victim. Keep in mind that for years, Spanbauer was a suspect in the 1992 disappearance of Laura DePease. But another serial killer, Larry Dwayne Hall, he confessed to her murder in 2010. In 1994, Cora Jean Jones was 12 years old a popular 7th grader who was close with her parents, Rick and Vicky, and her brother, Zach. She had a good relationship with her grandmother as well. Cora, who was born with a defective kidney and suffered through multiple surgeries as a child, had a sunny disposition and spoke of becoming a nurse when she grew up. She wanted to help other children like herself. While visiting her grandmother, she asked what would happen to her if she were kidnapped. And I'm sure that Cora was thinking about what had happened to Ronnie just two years earlier. Her grandmother reassured her that everything would be okay. She didn't have to worry about being kidnapped. On September 4th, this is the Labor Day holiday weekend, Cora and her cousins, Molly and Mary, as well as a fourth girl, a friend named Marcy, all spent the night at grandmother's rambling farmhouse south of Wapaka. The girls had supper with grandmother, ham and potatoes, and then they camped out on the living room floor for the night. In the morning, they rode their bikes to go fishing at Sanders Bridge, about half a mile from Grandma's house. They stayed at the bridge, fishing and swimming and goofing off until about one o'clock when Molly's older sister arrived to pick up Molly and Mary. It was about 2 p.m. after arriving back at Grandma's that Molly, Marcy, and Mary went home. Cora called her mom, Vicky, about 20 after 2. Vicky said she would come pick Cora up that afternoon, and Cora said, Oh, don't rush. I'm having a good time. Which she was, even though her cousins were gone, and she was visiting Grandma by herself at this point. When Cora hung up the phone with her mom, Grandma was baking in the kitchen. Deciding it was time for a bike ride, Cora hugged her grandmother and set out. This was the last time that she would be seen alive. When Cora wasn't back at the house by 3 o'clock, Grandma got worried and called around looking for Cora, but no one had seen her. A neighbor and some of the local kids went out to physically look for the missing tween. Down near Sanders Bridge, they found her bike. It was on the side of the road and the brake line was broken. The bike showed some minor damage. They would later learn that a motorist came across the bike sitting in the road and moved it off to the shoulder. The motorist called police that night to tell them when Cora's disappearance made the news. And word traveled quickly about the missing girl. Her description circulated. 
Cora was last seen wearing a neon green windbreaker, pink flowered shorts, and a pink t-shirt. Cora was 5 feet tall, 100 pounds, with brown hair and brown eyes. By 5.11 p.m., police were on the scene, and so were Cora's parents. More people joined the search, which lasted until about 8 p.m. when darkness fell. I'm sure that the decision to terminate the search when it got dark was heartbreaking both for investigators and her family. Less than a week after she vanished, on September 10, 1994, the body of Cora Jean Jones is found in a drainage ditch about 75 miles from her grandmother's place in Wapaka. She was nude, and her body showed stab wounds and signs of strangulation. Investigators are looking at parallels between Cora's abduction and murder and Ronnie's case from two years earlier. A task force is formed to investigate Cora's death. David Spanbauer's name was on the list of people to look into, but they never contacted him. Keep in mind, there are about 200 names on the list. It was made up of locals with a history of sexual offenses. They also had literally thousands of tips to sift through. Six weeks after Cora's body was recovered, David is back on the prowl. This time, he breaks into a house where a 15-year-old girl is alone. She was doing housework when David appeared. He'd just let himself in through an open door. See, this is why I always lock the doors. These creepers just let themselves in, and then it's horrible. He threatened the teenager and then covered her eyes with duct tape before he raped her. A few days after this attack, David again wrote to his parole officer, quote, Things are going well. No complaints. I do dread the cold coming and wish it could stay summer year-round. Smile. Did you get to Dora County? The reds and yellows were simply beautiful. Just two weeks later, David entered a home in Appleton, Wisconsin, and found the 31-year-old homeowner alone with her sleeping child. Like with the attack on the 15-year-old, he put duct tape over the woman's eyes and raped her at knife point. David is escalating, and he's getting careless. While it's horrifying, it's also something to be grateful for, because careless people make mistakes. Careless people get caught. On November 14, 1994, it's about 8 p.m. when a man named Gerald Argyll leaves his home in Combined Locks. Yeah, that's the village name. Combined Locks is on the river between Lake Winnebago and Green Bay. Anyway, Gerald comes back home minutes later to attend to his dog. He sees David Spanbauer running from his home. Gerald gives chase and tackles David to the ground, holding him there until police arrive. 53-year-old David is taken into custody. As police check his pockets prior to loading him into their cruiser, they find three hacksaw blades, an Allen wrench, and a pocket knife. These are considered burglary tools. When they search David's car, they find other, more concerning items, including duct tape, a pry bar, and a filleting knife. David's history is there in his record, and investigators are very interested in him for the July 3rd attempted abduction, as well as the two rapes in Appleton, Wisconsin. When they question David, he starts talking. He says that on July 3rd, he didn't mean to hurt the woman on the bicycle, he just wanted to scare her. Hoping for tips and leads from the public, David's name is released to the press. There are mixed reviews of David from his neighbors at the apartment complex who describe him as quiet and reserved, but nice. His landlord said he was never a problem and paid his rent on time. Co-workers at the bottling plant tell another story. They describe David as a hothead whose temper was on a hair trigger. 
When David meets with his probation officer, a man named Randall Haas, he confesses to murdering Cora Jones. The district attorney is summoned. David wants to talk, but he has a few requests. First, he wanted prosecutors to consolidate the charges and hasten his return to prison. He wanted sexual offender counseling while in prison, as well as protection from the other prisoners. He asked that his parole officer not get in trouble for what David did while on parole, and that his parole officer get credit for getting David to confess to the crimes. Finally, he wanted the announcement of his arrest to happen when his remaining family was out of town, so that reporters would not hound them. District attorneys from the various counties decided they could live with David's demands, especially if he gave a full confession to his many crimes. So, on November 21st, David confessed to killing Ronnie Eichstadt, Trudy Jeske, and Cora Jones. He also confessed to the October 1994 rape of the 15-year-old girl and the November 1994 rape of the 31-year-old woman. Two burglaries in Appleton, one on July 3rd and the other on October 13th, both in 1994. Less than a month after Gerald Argyll caught David Spanbauer running from his home, David will appear in court. On December 8, 1994, David pled guilty to 18 charges. These are seven counts of burglary, three counts of first-degree murder, two counts of first-degree sexual assault, three counts of kidnapping, two counts of first-degree sexual assault with a child, and one count of hiding a corpse. Just days before Christmas, David faces sentencing. His attorney, Tom Zetsch, said David was willing to undergo psychological study so something could be learned from his crimes. Tom said, quote, The system has failed not only the victims of his crimes, but David as well. Judge James Borgen sentenced David to life in prison without parole plus 403 years. This judge, unlike the lenient judges Spanbauer appeared before previously, said that David was, quote, pure evil, and that he slithered forth from a cesspool in hell. He said, quote, I just wonder what kind of foul, festering soul you are. You are pure evil. You have no character that I can consider. You are beyond hope and without redemption. As part of his plea agreement, where he would get protection, David was sent to a prison in Minnesota. He was only incarcerated for five or six years when his health began to fail. David, now in his late 50s, was sent to the Dodge County Correctional Center in Wapen, Wisconsin, where he spent much of his time in the infirmary. On July 29, 2002, David Spanbauer died of liver and heart disease. He was 61 years old. Listeners, we've had a bit of a format change this week, and I would love your feedback. You can email me, host at alreadygonepodcast.com, or find me on Twitter at alreadygonepod, or on Instagram at Nina Instead. This week's episode was researched by Haley Gray. Production assistance provided by Olivia Holmesley and audio production by Bill Burt. Please check out our sponsor, BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash gone and use code gone for a special savings on your first month. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening and please be safe. <laughs>